Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma. I'm sure it's pretty obvious by now that I always spoil the episodes by the time I get to the end of the podcast, but this time I'm going to spoil the episode at the very beginning of the podcast, because there's something strangely familiar about this story. I keep thinking I've seen it before. I don't mean that I've seen the episode before. I mean that I think I've seen it in a very different form, a form that involves medical students. And I keep thinking there's an EC comic that has this story. But I can't find evidence of any of this anywhere. Now, before we go any further, here's a quick rundown of what I'm talking about. Our story in a nutshell. Some people play a prank or stage a hoax on someone else, and they don't realize until many years later that that prank or hoax has driven the victim insane. Now, I've been rummaging through urban legend websites, searching for anything that may resemble this story. Here's one from Wattpad.com. A group of medical students decided to play a harmless prank on their easily frightened classmate. They planned a special study session to be held in the cadaver room with their intended victim. When the girl arrived for the session and found no one in the cadaver room, she thought she was too early and decided to read her notes. The rest of her groupmates were actually hiding, and they switched the lights off. The girl screamed and screamed to no avail, and then she stopped. After a while, the pranksters began to wonder what happened. Upon turning the lights on, they were shocked to see their hapless classmate gnawing on a piece of the cadaver. Here's a similar one from Snopes.com. A group of medical students were bored, so they tried to think of ways of livening things up. Eventually, one had the idea of borrowing a human foot from the dissecting laboratory and putting it in his girlfriend's bed as a joke. She was also a medical student, staying at the same hall of residence. The students obtained a human foot, went up to the girl's room, and put it in her bed. They thought it would be fun to hear her reactions, so they hid round the corner and waited for her to come home. The student who had the key realized that he had left it in the door. However, before he could remove it, the girl arrived back and, not thinking, unlocked the door with the key that was in the lock, took it in with her, and locked the door on the other side. A few moments later, they heard her screaming and crying out. They ran to the door and tried to open it, but it was locked. They shouted to her that it was all right, but she continued screaming hysterically. At this point, they decided to break down the door. However, it took them a while, and they were relieved when the screaming subsided. Finally, when they broke in and turned on the lights, they were horrified by what they found. The girl was sitting in the corner of the room with a glazed expression on her face, eating the human foot. The practical joke had backfired, and they had driven her mad. So those have the pranks leading to madness, and the medical students. But they don't have the delayed reaction of the pranksters discovering years later that someone has gone mad. And come to think of it, I'm the guy that brought up the medical students. There are no medical students in The Gentleman from America. As for EC Comics, the closest I could find was another story about pranks done by medical students. It was entitled Practical Choke from Vault of Horror number 30, cover dated April-May 1953. In that story, three medical students take parts of a cadaver on the subway to the beach to the amusement park and leave pieces here and there in various grotesque ways to shock and scare people. 
but the cadaver itself gets revenge at the end, somehow strangling them with its own intestines. So now we're really going down the wrong rabbit hole. But my recollection is of a story of medical students playing a prank on another medical student whom they don't see again for a number of years when he shows up at a reunion. But he is soon followed by the men in the white coats because he has escaped from an asylum, having been insane since the night of their prank. Now, it could be that my memory has conflated urban legends that I've read, plus The Gentleman from America, which I read many years ago in the collection Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural. Still, if anyone has any knowledge of the medical student version, please let me know. And in the meantime, let's look at the short story of The Gentleman from America, first published in 1925, and its author, Michael Arlen. Michael Arlen was born in Bulgaria. His birth name was, and I apologize if I mangle this, Dikran Kuyumjian. Here is his entire entry from Britannica.com. British author whose novels and short stories epitomized the brittle gaiety and underlying cynicism and disillusionment of fashionable post-World War I London society. The son of an Armenian merchant, Arlen was brought up in England, to which his father had escaped, to avoid Turkish persecution. By 1916, he was living in London, enjoying the company of such writers as D.H. Lawrence and George Moore, and writing articles for periodicals and journals. He took the name Michael Arlen in 1922, when he became a British subject, and wrote two books of short stories before his first novel, Piracy, was published. His best-known work was published two years later. The phenomenal popular success of The Green Hat, a witty, sophisticated, but fundamentally sentimental novel about the bright young things of Mayfair, London's most fashionable romantic district of the period, made him famous almost overnight in Great Britain and the United States. After 1928, when he married the Countess Atalanta Mercati, Arlen lived mainly in the south of France. Though he was for a time much celebrated, Arlen never repeated the popular success of The Green Hat, which had been adapted for both stage, starring Tallulah Bankhead, and screen, as A Woman of Affairs, starring Greta Garbo. He wrote a screenplay, The Heavenly Body, and a number of books, including Man's Mortality and the thriller The Flying Dutchman, before retiring to New York City in 1945. So let's unpack that and spread that out a little bit. As the Britannica says, Michael Arlen did not become a British subject until 1922, so he was still a Bulgarian national when World War I broke out, and Bulgaria was on Germany's side in the war. So he was judged with suspicion during that time, and as Wikipedia says, he found company in modernist literary circles with others who had been looked upon suspiciously or had been denied military service. Among these were Aldous Huxley, D.H. Lawrence, Nancy Cunard, and George Moore. In 1920, he spent some time in France with Nancy Cunard, although she was married to someone else. And that relationship apparently made Aldous Huxley very jealous. So it's perhaps poetic justice that when Arlen published Man's Mortality, which was a book set in 1983 in a dystopia whose rulers claimed it was a utopia, that most critics viewed it unfavorably compared with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which had come out the year before. 
Harlan also wrote gothic horror, and his main claim to fame in pop culture crime fiction was a short story entitled Gay Falcon, a character later adapted by Hollywood into a series of films starring George Sanders, the Falcon films. Wikipedia says, very much a 1920s society figure resembling the characters he portrayed in his novels, and a man who might be referred to as a dandy, Arlen invariably impressed everyone with his immaculate manners. He was always impeccably dressed and groomed, and was seen driving around London in a fashionable yellow Rolls Royce and engaging in various luxurious activities. However, he was well aware of the latent suspicion of foreigners mixed with the envy with which his success was viewed by some. Near the end of his life, Arlen mainly occupied himself with political writing. Arlen's vivid but colloquial style, with unusual inversions and inflections with a heightened exotic pitch, came to be known as Arlenesque. Wikipedia goes on to say, In 1939, when the Second World War began, Arlen returned to England. That same year, his final book, The Flying Dutchman, was published, a political novel commenting harshly on Germany's position in the World War. In 1940, Arlen was appointed civil defense public relations officer for the East Midlands, but when his loyalty to England was questioned in the House of Commons in 1941, he resigned and moved to America, where he settled in New York in 1946. For the next 10 years of his life, Arlen suffered from writer's block. Now, back in the period of his fame, Michael Arlen was on the cover of Time magazine, the May 2nd, 1927 issue. Here is the entire cover story. Last week, a ship set out from England, bearing to the U.S. that suave young cosmopolite, born Dikran Kuyumjian, beside the Bulgarian Danube some 35 years ago, whose activities on the banks of the Thames as Michael Arlen, Anglo-Armenian raconteur, spread his fame to the banks of the Hudson and set a fashion in headgear among remotest up-creek settlements. Simultaneous with his return to the U.S., Michael Arlen's agents last week announced that his novel and play of 1924-25, The Green Hat, are to have a third incarnation as cinema, perhaps with Norma Talmadge. More directly responsible for Mr. Arlen's arrival was the U.S. publication of his new novel. Second comings are less breathless than firsts. Mr. Arlen will not again encounter overt U.S. curiosity about his fancy waist and waistcoats, his nightclub complexion, his affinities and affectations. He will not feel whole literary cocktail parties hanging on his lightest utterance, for it is well agreed now what he can and cannot say, what a pleasantly trite clam he is sometimes, and how low he once brought bold Edna Ferber in a single exchange of shots about looking feminine. That exchange is reportedly this. Miss Ferber. Why, Mr. Arlen, you look almost like a woman. Mr. Arlen, softly. And so do you, Miss Ferber. He will be permitted to enjoy himself and the U.S. this time, and his real friends, of whom he made quite a number, will see something of him besides the back view of a man shaking hands. Toward his writing, too, he will find a reaction. Here, as in England, people have decided that his glamour is false, that no one, except in books for maids and butlers, was ever so gallant, arrogant, terse of speech, deep of feeling, precious of wit, as Mr. Arlen's high-strung Mayfarians. But to such criticism, as to lionizing, he is apparently impervious. He seems to be writing about actual friends of his, or people he would like to have for friends, with an inflection that first of all suits himself, 
however well it may also suit the public. When they call him a literary lackey, he is artist enough not to mind. He snickers softly up his poplin cuff. The point has been missed, yet his work is good. It satisfies his oriental sense of perfection, and it sells enormously. Young Men in Love, the current novel, is another tale of those extravagantly sporting English hybrids whose fortunes are rivaled in caliber only by their misfortunes. The main characters are six, three of the pre-war generation, Searle the politician, Townley the newspanner magnate, Varden the financier. Let us call them, merely to be dramatic and to please the public, the three horsemen of the apocalypse. Politics, the press, finance. Then there is Venetia, the daughter of finance, Raphael, the son of the press, and Seville, the writer, whose resemblance to author Arlen will provoke chit-chat. All these people fall in love with the utmost bitterness. Venetia is lost between Peter Searle and Charles Seville. Raphael grows excited about an actress, but fails to commit suicide, although author Arlen has thoughtfully put a yacht at his service with this purpose in mind. In the main, their actions are unimportant, their manners make the story. Other figures glitter from unexpected portions of the narrative. Mr. Arlen has not entirely relinquished his trick of reinserting personages from previous books. The immaculate George Tollian is seen for an instant playing bridge. The pages are broken with epigrams. Good servants are trustworthy, and it is doubtful whether there is a great man in history who would not, as a valet, have pilfered from his master. The style is quicker on its feet, less mannered than before. Occasionally, as indicated, author Arlen squares off too noticeably for a purple passage, a witty remark. So I think we've got a pretty good idea of the man and his writing style at this point. But here's the introduction to The Gentleman from America in Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural. Michael Arlen won his reputation as the writer of bright novels and short stories, dealing chiefly with the British upper classes, the denizens of Mayfair. The Green Hat achieved enormous popularity, and its heroine, Iris March, was portrayed on the screen by Greta Garbo and on the stage by Catherine Cornell. The Gentleman from America is a clever and exciting story, but when the titular hero opens his lips, he speaks in the weird tongue that is employed only by American characters on the British stage. Mr. Arlen, after a prolonged residence in New York and Hollywood, presumably knows better now. But when we are told in the Reader's Digest about American soldiers in England who say to the girls they have just met, let's get hot, Dot, let's show them how to cook with both burners, and pucker up your lips, gorgeous, I'm coming in on the beam, then we shudder to think what those stage Americans are going to talk like after the war. Jack Seabrook at barebonesez.blogspot.com provides a few examples of the Americanisms of the story. You get a guy so low with your talk that I feel I could put on a tall hat and crawl under a snake. Sir, you are one big bum phantom. Jupiter and Jane, but he'd learned that ghost to stop ghosting. And then Jack adds, in addition to the dated writing style, there is a subtle anti-American message in the story. Puce, the gentleman from America, called Howard Latimer in the Hitchcock episode, like a good American, could never get the cold dope on all this fancy title stuff, and bristles at addressing Quillier, the story's version of Sir Stephen Hurstwood, as Sir. The narrator also comments that travelers have remarked, however, 
that the exciting traditions behind a 100% American nationality have given birth and even the most gentle citizens of that great republic to a feeling of familiarity with guns. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back and look at the story itself. It begins this way. It is told by a decayed gentleman at the sign of the Leather Butler, which is in Shepherd's Market, which is in Mayfair, how one night three men behaved in a most peculiar way, and one of them was left for dead. So we get right to it. Three men in a mansion, two of them claiming that there is a ghost that haunts a particular room in the mansion. And if you're thinking that you'd like to read this story yourself, here's a paragraph from early on that may give you an idea of what you're up against. It was, however, the gentleman in between the two whom it will advantage the reader to consider. This was an unusually tall and strongly built man. Yet it was not his giant stature, but rather the assurance of his bearing which was remarkable. His very clothes sat on his huge frame with an air of firmness, of finality, that, as even a glance at his two companions would show, is deprecated by English tailors, whose inflexible formula it is that the elegance of the casual is the only possible elegance for gentlemen of the mode. While his face had that weathered yet untired and eager look, which is the enviable possession of many Americans, and is commonly considered to denote, for reasons not very clearly defined, the quality known as poise. Not, however, that this untired and eager look is, as some have supposed, the outward sign of a lack of interest and dissipation, but rather of an enthusiastic and naive curiosity as to the varieties of the same. The gentleman from America looked in fine to be a proper man, and one who, in his early thirties, had established a philosophy of which his comfort and his assurance of retaining it were the two poles, his easy perception of humbug the pivot, and his fearlessness the latitude and longitude. So two men, Sir Cyril Quillier and Mr. Keir Anderson, lead Howard Cornelius Puce, the gentleman from America, up to a room which is supposedly haunted. They have bet him 500 pounds that he can't spend the night there. Quillier has a nice line. There are two sorts of men on whom ghosts have an effect, those who are silly enough to believe in them and those who are silly enough not to believe in them. They leave him up there with a candle, and in the room he finds a book called Tales of Terror for Tiny Tots by Evor Pelham Marley. He reads a story in there entitled The Phantom Footsteps, and we get that whole story within this story. In that story, twin sisters Julia and Geraldine Bigot Baggett learn from their father that, as Arlen puts it, he had inherited a considerable property from a distant relation, and the reader can go on imagining the exaltation of the girls when they heard that the property included a mansion in Belgravia, since that for which they had always yearned most was to enjoy from a central situation the glittering life of the metropolis. Arlen says, now Julia and Geraldine, though twins, were of vastly different temperaments. For whereas Julia was a girl of gay and indomitable spirit who knew not fear, Geraldine suffered from agonies of timidity and knew nothing else. So they go ahead of their father and spend the night in the mansion. And when they hear something downstairs, Julia goes to investigate. Geraldine waits in the dark, and after a while she hears the bedroom door open and footsteps coming into the room. Arlen says Geraldine thought she recognized her sister's maidenly tread, but Julia doesn't speak. And finally, when the footsteps get right next to the bed, Geraldine reaches up 
to touch her sister's face, but her fingers had risen no farther than Julia's throat when they touched something wet and warm, and with a scream of indescribable terror, Geraldine fainted away. And the story of the phantom footsteps ends like this. The tragic story unfolded only when the police arrived. It then became clear that Julia, her head half-severed from her body, and therefore a corpse, had yet with indomitable purpose come upstairs to warn her timid sister against the homicidal lunatic who, just escaped from an asylum nearby, had penetrated into the house. However, the police consoled the distracted father not a little by pointing out that the escape of the homicidal lunatic from the asylum had done some good, insomuch as there would now be room in an asylum near her home for Geraldine. After reading the story, Puce accidentally knocks over his candle and it goes out. And he talks tough the rest of the way, but Arlen makes it clear to us that he is actually quite shaken, particularly when the ghost arrives. Again, unaccountably, Mr. Puce found himself shouting at the top of his voice. Someone laughed. Mr. Puce quite distinctly heard himself laughing, and that made him laugh again. And again, the gentleman from America found it quite delicious, the feeling that he was not frightened. boy. The drops of sweat from his forehead bothered him, though. Ah, what the hell, that was only excitement. He ends up firing all of his shots from his gun into the ghost to no effect. And then the revolver fell from Mr. Puce's shaking fingers. Mr. Puce heard himself screaming. I'm going to go back to Jack Seabrook because he does a nice job of summing this up. Eleven years later, Quillier and Kerr Anderson encounter Puce outside an inn in the English countryside. Quillier lost an arm in the First World War, and Puce is a wreck of the hardy giant of years before. The Brits explain what happened on the fateful night. They had thought Puce dead and run off, leaving him alone in the house, where he was later discovered to be suffering from shock and nervous breakdown. Quillier had impersonated the ghost, and they had replaced the bullets in his gun with blanks. The truth revealed, Puce attacks Quillier and has to be pulled off him by the men in dark uniforms. It is explained that Puce is now a homicidal maniac who had escaped that morning. Been like that 11 years. Got a shock, I fancy. Keeps on talking about a sister of his called Julia who was murdered, and how he'll be revenged for it, says the head warder. God have mercy on us, sobs Quillier. Jack goes on to tell us that the gentleman from America has been adapted for the large and small screens more than once. A 1948 film called The Fatal Night was an official adaptation, and on April 25, 1950, the story was adapted for the television series Suspense in an episode directed by Robert Stevens. On December 18, 1958, a Canadian TV show called The Unforeseen produced another adaptation of the story, and it was also the uncredited source for an episode of Thriller, called The Purple Room, which aired on October 25th, 1960. Now, I can't find The Fatal Night or The Unforeseen episode, and the suspense episode is lost. But the thriller episode is available on YouTube. It stars Rip Torn, Patricia Barry, Richard Anderson, and what looks like The House from Psycho. And it riffs off of The Gentleman from America story, a couple tries to scare their cousin out of staying in a house, only to accidentally scare him to death, only it turns out he's not dead after all, and it becomes far too complicated to talk about here. 
except that it does have one line in common with Michael Arlen's story. Ghosts only appear to those who are fool enough to believe in them. And those who are fool enough not to. One of Jack's readers, Grant, notes in the comments on Jack's blog for The Gentleman from America, in a way, the ending is like the ending of The Cadaver on the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. That's episode eight of season two. And maybe that's where I'm getting this medical student business mixed in. Or maybe not. Michael Arlen died in 1956 at the age of 60, just a shade under two months after this episode airs. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents contribution. So that's about it, except for the actual Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. It's so similar to the short story that it almost feels like we could just skip it. Except, that's what we're here for. And it'd be nice to see what Francis Cockrell and Robert Stevens do with this story. So let's dive in at last. Here's Hitch, sitting in a chair at a desk, which has a lit candle, two books, and a box on it. There's a door behind him with a sign on it that says, Quiet. Good evening. Do you believe in ghosts? The candle disappears. Of course not. I knew you didn't. The desk, books, and box all disappear. Noise is the mortal enemy of good motion picture making and television broadcasting. That is why I hired this particular house. It is deathly quiet. Most of the time. And its reputation for being haunted keeps away the curious. The chair disappears, but he stays in place. The shifting of scenery also seems to be better here. The human element has been removed. So, if you will just lean back and relax, I'll tell you a little ghost story. Please don't hesitate to turn out your lights. I'm sure the warm glow from the picture tube will be sufficient to melt all your fears of the dark. But before we view with alarm, allow us to point with pride. So here's The Gentleman from America. First broadcast on April 29th, 1956. Starring Biff McGuire. Teleplay by Francis Cockrell, based on a story by Michael Arlen and directed by Robert Stevens. We have seen both Francis Cockrell and Robert Stevens numerous times before. This is Francis Cockrell's eighth episode after Revenge, Breakdown, The Case of Mr. Pelham, A Bullet for Baldwin, You Got to Have Luck, Back for Christmas, and Who Done It, which he also directed. He has 11 more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and his next is Momentum, episode 39. And this is Robert Stevens' 12th episode. After Premonition, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Cheney Vase, You Got to Have Luck, the older sister, shopping for death, 
Place of Shadows, The Perfect Murder, Portrait of Jocelyn, and our last episode, Never Again. He has 32 more Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and five Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes. And his next is our next, making it three in a row, The Babysitter, episode 32. We begin with an exterior shot. An inscription comes up in Gothic lettering that says London, May 1940. Now, May 1940 is when World War II starts heating up. During that month, the Germans have invaded France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. And by the end of the month, the British have begun their evacuation at Dunkirk. So this story is conveniently placed just prior to Britain's full immersion into the war. The short story, published in 1925, remember, began at the crest of World War I. So it makes perfect sense to move it up to World War II. But while Francis and Robert move the time up, they move the beginning of the story back. Whereas the story begins with the three men already in the mansion, here we dissolve to a men's club. And the first person we see reading the newspaper is Sam Harris. Who is Sam Harris? Well, he's one of the extras in this scene. Because just like our last episode where we had a bunch of partygoers, some credited, some not, this time we have a bunch of club members, some credited, some not. Actually, Sam is one of the uncredited club patrons. He was born in Sydney, Australia in 1877, and he has an immense list of credits beginning in 1928. He appears as an extra in five Alfred Hitchcock films, Foreign Correspondent, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Saboteur, The Paradigm Case, and Dial M for Murder. And he's in five Best Picture Academy Award winners, You Can't Take It With You, All the King's Men, Around the World in 80 Days, My Fair Lady, and The Sound of Music. For you anthology fans out there, he is in three episodes of Thriller, The Prediction, The Poisoner, Papa Benjamin, an episode of One Step Beyond, Emergency Only, and an episode of The Twilight Zone, Passage on the Lady Anne. In many of his roles, he has no lines. But he does have a line in The Adventures of Captain Marvel, episode one of the movie serial, in which he plays British Colonel Hudson. Yes, Sergeant? Trouble with that Malcolm expedition in the Valley of Tomb, sir. They're standing by. Ask their exact position and tell them I'll send a troop immediately. Orderly! Sam has no lines here. He is in three total Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes, and he plays a club patron in all three. His next is The Legacy, episode number 35, and we'll see when we get there whether he has any lines in that. Sam Harris died in 1969 at the age of 92. The camera doesn't stay on Sam very long. It pans around the room, showing us other club patrons most of whom are not only uncredited in the show, but in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Wiki, and IMDb as well. After circling around the room a bit, the camera finally stops on Biff McGuire. Since the moment we began this scene, we've been hearing a radio playing a horse race, and Biff, with an excited look on his face and his hand clenched into a fist, is clearly rooting for one of the horses. He is standing next to John Irving, and they are in the foreground in a typical nice Robert Stevens shot when Ralph Clanton comes in the door behind them. 
These are our three leads, so let's look at them. Biff McGuire plays Howard Latimer, the gentleman from America, and he was born William Joseph McGuire Jr. Wikipedia says his nickname of Biff evolved while playing football in his early years, but it doesn't explain what Biff has to do with football. Later in his career, he went back to his actual name, sort of, billing himself as William Biff McGuire. Now, Biff was stationed in England during World War II, and that's when he started to become involved in theater, painting sets and acting in local productions. And while he does have his share of TV credits, later in episodes of shows such as Starsky and Hutch, Kojak, Police Story, Barnaby Jones, Remington Steele, Jag, and Judging Amy, he seems to have spent much of his career in the theater. In 1960, he was in a production of Finian's Rainbow with Jeannie Carson, whom he married that same year. And then in 1961, they toured in one of the first national tours of Camelot, in which Biff played King Arthur and Jeannie played Guinevere. They performed together for much of their careers, including a 15-year stint with the Seattle Repertory Theater. Biff was in Broadway productions of South Pacific, The Time of Your Life, Arthur Miller's A View from a Bridge, Beggar on Horseback, and A Streetcar Named Desire. And later in his career, he was nominated twice for Tony Awards as Best Actor, first in 1997 for The Young Man from Atlanta, and then in 2002 for a revival of Mornings at Seven. I found two newspaper clippings about Biff and Jeannie online. The first is from 1963's Detroit Free Press, when Biff was performing in Mary Mary at the Fisher Theater. And in it, he talks about meeting Jeannie Carson in Finian's Rainbow, saying, I sang louder than she did, so she had to marry me to quiet me. He also says, I like television, and I grew up in it, working with marvelous actors in live shows. I loved it when it was live and they were doing creative things, but now it's quite different. The article says that when he was trying to break into TV, he had snared a four-line bit part when producer Fred Coe spotted him in a studio hallway, had Biff read, and pushed him into a major role. But it doesn't say what that major role was. The other clipping is from 1969, the post-crescent of Appleton, Wisconsin. Biff and Jeannie were touring in Cactus Flower, and they were just coming from Winnipeg to perform in Appleton on the stage of Appleton High School West. They seem perfectly happy to be in any venue, and Biff says it's a good change of pace, enjoyable, sort of an adaption of a popular Parisian farce, sort of an audience show. I enjoy playing it. And the column goes on to say, because they work frequently together, Biff McGuire and Jeannie Carson have been able to develop a teamwork, a reciprocating pace and style that reminds many playgoers of the onstage rapport between other well-known acting couples. Biff and Jeannie are still together, as far as I can tell. At the time of this recording, Jeannie Carson is 92 and Biff McGuire is 94 years old. Now, in spite of his emphasis on theater, Biff has a pretty robust bio on IMDb, along with those TV shows I mentioned. He was also in some soap operas. But what really stands out to me are three films. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, 
guess so. You think someday we'll have you well and all? Do you think maybe we could buy a piano? Well, Mick. Why not make it a solid gold one while you're wishing? No, really, Papa, could we? Well, Mick, I don't know. A piano, that'd cost a lot of money. And it ain't as if any one of us could play it. I could learn. That'd take more money. Well, Mick, I'll tell you, if you're so set on making music, I could carve you out a ukulele. That's just a kid toy. The Thomas Crown Affair. Oh, that's too bad, Tommy. You almost made it. Almost. Now, another grand. Even money? Mm-hmm. That's a sucker bet. You're faded. That's two grand for you if you drop it in. A thousand twenty for me if you miss. You're mad. Absolutely mad. What else can we do on Sunday? And Serpico. It's good to see you again, Frank. I'm finished. What's wrong? I can't take it anymore. I gotta get out. If I have to go back to uniform, I'm going back to uniform. I can't wait for Delaney to call, and I can't play their game anymore. I'm right in the middle. I can't take it. Frank, you mean to say the commissioner didn't get in touch no, with you? No, he didn't get in touch with me. Not a Frank, word. I no investigation. Frank. No undercover I, work. I have no idea, Frank. Well, Captain, I think it's only fair to tell you. I've been to outside agencies. I'm going to go to more if I have to. What outside agencies? Holy mother of God. Frank, we wash our own laundry around here. Oh, yeah? Now, you could be brought up in charges for I this. I always thought so, but the oh, reality is that we do not wash our own trouble, laundry. Sir, it just gets dirty. You are in trouble. I don't care if I'm in trouble. I don't care who gets it anymore, including myself. Because if I have to go to outside agencies to get somebody to hear my story, well, where am I going to go? You hear me, sir, before? Stay away from where me. Where am I going to go? You just wait until you hear from me. I've been waiting for a year and a half. What are you talking about? Frank. That's not enough. I'll get back. But where am I going to go? Biff McGuire is in three more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is The Hidden Thing, episode 34. Ralph Clanton was born in Fresno, California, and was, in fact, the second cousin of Ike Clanton, of the Clanton gang, which faced off against the Earps in the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. But he seems to have specialized in playing devious British types, as he does here, where he is Sir Stephen Hurstwood. He, like Biff McGuire, specialized in the theater, at least to start. And he got his big break on Broadway playing the Comte de Guise, the foil to José Ferrer's Cyrano de Bergerac. This is his bio from the playbill of that production. A popular Shakespearean actor, Clanton has played in the Chinese classic Lute Song with Mary Martin, Othello with Paul Robeson, José Ferrer, and Uta Hagen, and now the French classic Cyrano de Bergerac with José Ferrer. The three engagements took place in the 1945-6 season, and in each of them, Clanton had a prominent featured role. He received his start back in 1939 at the Mohawk Drama Festival, where he was engaged for the production of Romance with Cornelia Otis Skinner. Following this, he played Malcolm in Macbeth with Maurice Evans and Judith Anderson, Close on the heels of Macbeth came an engagement with George Caloris in Richard III, in which he had the role of Catesby. In 1944, he played in two minor productions, Strange Play and Victory Bells. 
Now, Ralph Clanton and Jose Ferrer were the only two actors from the Broadway production of Cyrano who were cast in the 1950 film version. Monsieur de Bergerac. Your Excellency. I have come to express my admiration for both your exploits last night. Indeed. Thank you. My dear fellow, we may have had our differences, but I am disposed to forget them. That is very generous of you, sir. No, truly. You are, it seems, a man of many skills. A rare combination, soldier and poet. Would you care to join my following? No, sir. I do not follow. Right after Cyrano, Ralph appeared in three episodes of the television version of Suspense, all directed by Robert Stevens. Photo Finish, The Death Cards, and The Suicide Club. May I respectfully remind Mr. Good that he is the heir to a throne. That limits the risks that your highness should run. Gerard, how many times have you uttered that warning? I've lost count, sir. And have I ever heeded it? You constantly disregard it, sir. And I shall do the same tonight. So cease talking like a timid lady in waiting, or you'll dampen our evening. You'll also find him in the Lights Out episode, The Passage Beyond, and three thriller episodes. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper, Man of Mystery, and The Cheaters. The jerks. from the last hand. Aren't you going to look at your hand, Dean? Wait till I tell the boys at the club how the stupid little climber pretended to lose like a gentleman. Wonder if he really did do away with the old lady. What's he staring at me for? Can he see the cards under my arm? Yes. Yes, I see the cards under your arm, Thorgus, and two aces. He's in four episodes of Perry Mason, including the very unsympathetic murder victim in the case of the fancy figures. Aren't you forgetting something, Jonathan? We are not the only ones concerned in this. You have a daughter. Suppose you leave Valerie out of this. You're asking the impossible, Jonathan. It just so happens that the lady in question is my wife. You wouldn't want anyone to unlock the skeleton in your own closet, would you? And you'll find him in the underrated 1957 science fiction film, The 27th Day. Professor, I wonder if you fully understand the concern that has gripped the world. It is because of that concern that I must withhold my information. The White House feels that you should give us some idea of the alien's mission. Don't you see that by remaining silent you create even more apprehension? I see it, Mr. Ingram, but unfortunately there is nothing I can do about it. You'll find him in a bevy of 50s and early 60s television programs. Everything from Circus Boy to Mike Hammer to Sea Hunt to 77 Sunset Strip. And just when it seems like he's always either nasty or British or both, he shows up in the 1976 PBS Great Performances as George Washington. His last on-screen appearance is in 1983's Trading Places, and Ralph Clanton died in 2002 at the age of 88. This is his first of seven Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. His next, along with Sam Harris, is The Legacy, episode 35. John Irving, 
who plays Derek, is a mystery man. I can't find anything about him. I can't tell you what year he was born and whether he's still alive. He only has 16 credits on IMDb, beginning with an episode of Cavalcade of America in 1955 and ending with the TV movie version of Inherit the Wind in 1965, where he is credited as John D. Irving. I skimmed through two of his films, Gabby and Dion, but I couldn't find him. The one thing I can tell you for sure is that John Irving is not the writer, which is part of the problem, I think, because anytime you look up John Irving, you pretty much get nothing but the writer. In any event, I can also tell you that he appeared at Her Majesty's Theatre in London in 1964 in The Right Honorable Gentleman, and he appeared on Broadway with Write Me a Murder, A Severed Head, and Half a Sixpence, although mostly as an understudy. The only other thing I can find is a 1965 press photo of him with Pat Hitchcock, but I can't figure out where it's from since they don't seem to have appeared together in anything. Not surprisingly, this is John Irving's only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. Okay, I've gone on for about 45 minutes without playing a single clip from The Gentleman from America, and I realize it doesn't do much good to play Biff McGuire and Ralph Clanton clips if you can't compare them with how they sound in the show. So let's get to the show and to one of those clips. Hello, Stephen. Derek, have you got something on this race? Naturally. What horse? Brown Meadow, the favorite. But he won't pay anything. You can't have got better than three to one. Two and a half, but I've got to win. I'm in the red nearly 600 here at the club. I've got to report to the Admiral today after tomorrow. I'm being called up, you know. But so am I. England expects every man to do his duty and pay his debt. So there's a nice little bit of exposition about Sir Stephen and Derek. Sir Stephen is desperate for money, desperate enough to bet on the favorite. And he owes a lot of money even just to the club itself. And he needs to pay right away because he's being called up by the Admiralty to get into the war. Derek says he's been called up too. So now we know that if things are going to happen for Stephen, they have to happen fast. But of course, Brown Meadow, which seems like a bad luck name for a horse, does not win the race. Instead, the winner is Curly Top, a long shot. And who has money on Curly Top? Why, the gentleman from America, of course. Yeah, I had 500 pounds on Curly Top. No, not really. Yeah. Listen to that, will you? Latimer had 500 on Curly Top at 10 to 1. However, did you pick him? Well, I got a tip from the hall porter at my hotel. <laughs> of the three men with whom Howard Latimer is talking, I can only identify one. That is Jeffrey Steele. He's the one that says... However, did you pick him? You can find him as a steward in Funny Girl, a taxi driver in My Fair Lady, a photographer in Lay Girls, and as Man in Elevator in Superman 3. He was the third husband of socialite and occasional actress Mildred Shea, who at five feet tall was dubbed by Walter Winchell as Hollywood's Pocket Venus. Wikipedia says in 1940, Shea met British Army Captain Jeffrey Steele and fell in love. The couple married in 1941 amid speculation and bets by the tabloid magazines about how long the union would last. Shea said most gave it three to six months. Nobody gave us 40 years. The couple remained married until Jeffrey Steele died in 1987 at the age of 72. And this is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. 
So as Howard is gloating about his racetrack victory, the camera shifts over to Sir Stephen and Derek again. Sir Stephen is large in the foreground on the right side of the screen, Derek just behind him, as Derek lets on that Howard Latimer is quite wealthy. Oh? Do you know him? An American. Name of Latimer. Does he play poker, do you suppose? Probably. I think I should like to meet Mr. Latimer. Why don't you ask him to join us in the bar? All right. Derek and Sir Stephen give each other these wonderful, amused, conspiratorial looks. They clearly have been partners in crime, so to speak, for quite some time. So Derek brings Howard into the bar, introduces him to Sir Stephen, but Howard turns down the poker, saying that he'd prefer doing something more frivolous. He suggests poker the next day, but Sir Stephen says he can't do it the next day, and he sure can't. He's getting called up. In the meantime, he has to go to his mansion, Hurstwood, because the government is taking it over during the course of the war. You know, it, it must be very satisfying and sort of wonderful to own a place like Hurstwood, you know, with everything that's back of it. Yes, I suppose it would be. <laughs> I'm afraid I don't understand. It's only that with the mortgage holders and the death duties, my inheritance of Hurstwood is purely nominal. Stephen's father died only a few months ago. And as I'm being called into the service day after tomorrow, I shan't be around. So the death tax people and the mortgage holders can fight it out with the ghost for possession, and good luck to all of them. The, the ghost? The Hurstwood ghost. It's very well known. Oh, you, you're kidding. Not at all. And speaking of things back of it, there is an extra sitting right behind Howard as he sits at a table with Sir Stephen and Derek. And I'm pretty sure that extra is Herschel Graham. We saw Herschel last time as a party guest in Never Again, episode 30. And he has two more appearances on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, as well as two appearances in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next, along with Sam Harris and Ralph Clanton, is episode 35, The Legacy, in which he plays a club patron again. Do you mean to say that you, you actually believe a, a ghost exists? Well, have you seen it yourself? No, it doesn't appear to members of the family. It only appears if you try to spend the night in the Cromwell room. <laughs> you know, I, I really believe you're serious. Well, I, I just don't happen to believe in ghosts, you see, and really a lot of people don't, you know. Of course, they've never seen one. Do you mean to say that whenever anyone tries to spend a night in this room, the uh, ghost appears? That's right. And I, uh, I don't suppose uh, I could spend the night there? I should be very happy to let you try to spend a night in the room. Oh, wonderful. You know, I always want to... I should also be very happy to bet that you can't do it. Oh, by all means, let's have a bet. You name the stakes. Very well. A thousand pounds. A thousand pounds? Well, if you feel you can't afford it. Well, of course I can afford it. it it's just that it seems ridiculous to bet a thousand on something I'm certain to win. I'm sorry, I never bet less than a thousand. All right. It's a deal. Good. Well, 
good haunting. Okay, so now we know, because we've already read the story, that the whole ghost thing is a bunch of bunk. But Derek is right in there feeding information, the Cromwell room, along with Sir Stephen. And they certainly didn't seem to have had time to plan this because they were assuming they were going to play poker. So this must be a scam that they've pulled more than once. Now, Sir Stephen is making a bet of a thousand pounds. He lies and says he'd never bet less than that because, of course, we already saw that he bet less than that on the horse race. But there's a reason why he's asking for a thousand pounds. A little piece of information that I skipped over at the time. After he loses the race, he says, Well, I'm in a thousand now. So that's just the amount he needs to get out of the hole. There's another important point that I skipped over. When Howard first meets Sir Stephen, he says, so I've been on the continent the last few months, you see. I have no family to worry about, so I've been trying to see as much as I can while I can. Now, I have a feeling this phony war won't last much longer. No, it's not that Howard thinks that the impending World War II is a phony war. It's that he has no family, which means that he could disappear into an asylum for five years, just as an example, and apparently no one would know the difference. Though if he's as wealthy as Derek and Sir Stephen think he is, you'd think someone would notice the difference. So now let's leave our club patrons behind as we move to another exterior shot, this time of a mansion with more Gothic lettering telling us that it's Hurstwood Manor. Before we go, though, I can't identify any more of the extras in that club scene, but I do have one name that is actually in the episode's final credits, John Dodsworth, but I can't find him. And I know what John Dodsworth looks like, because I've seen him as Dr. Carthright in The Magnetic Monster, and as Sir William Drayton in Buona Devil. Well, there really is no hunting like India. For my part, Africa's like Kew Gardens. <laughs> He's in Gabby, where I can't find John Irving, and he's in The 27th Day, where I can find Ralph Clanton. And he's also in radio versions of Rebecca in the Lux Radio Theater and The Birds on Escape. And he died in 1964 at the age of 53 of suicide by asphyxiation. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, assuming he has and Alfred Hitchcock presents appearance. All right, let's go inside that manor where Derek presents Howard with the terms of the bet. I have your check for 1,000 pounds, and I have Stevens. The camera switches over to show us Sir Stephen looking over at the two of them in a conspiratorial way. If only Howard would notice these different looks, maybe he wouldn't get himself into this mess. But as it is, we get that look from Sir Stephen because he knows, and we know that there is no check from Sir Stephen for a thousand pounds. Or if there is, if they've shown one to Howard, it certainly isn't any good. If you spend the entire night in the room, you have won. If you leave it for any reason before six tomorrow morning, Stephen wins. Right? Right. Correct. And you're to be allowed one candle and one match only. You'll understand that better when you know more about the ghost itself. Well, that's just what I've been trying to find out. Whose ghost is this, anyhow? I and mean, what is supposed to be the story? You would have to use candles in that wing in any case. It's never been wired for electricity. <laughs> that's all right about the candles, but wh what about the ghost? Oh, yes. There's one other thing. So that you may be absolutely certain that 
Anything which does appear is not mortal. You can have this. And Sir Stephen hands him a gun. Now, in the story, Puce, our version of Howard Latimer, brings his own gun. So somehow, in a manner not explained, the two conspirators have to get that gun away from him and replace the bullets with blanks. Here, they don't have to worry about that. They're the ones that provide the gun. And they learn that in Latimer's case, he doesn't really know much of anything about guns. Howard proves this when his bullet hits the molding of the fireplace after Sir Stephen has coaxed him into taking a test shot into the fire. But that bullet in the molding proves that there are bullets in the gun. At least there was one bullet. Now, again, they have come from the club to Hurstwood Manor. And we know from the story that the rest of the shots in that gun are blanks. So Sir Stephen keeps a gun that has one live bullet and five blanks, all to run this scam. You would think that word would get around. You'll have to be a bit more accurate than that, old boy, unless it's a very large ghost. Of course, I don't suppose you'll need it unless the ghost comes quite close to you. There, now the safety is on again. Well, do you want to keep it or not? I think I shall. And I think I should tell you that I shall use it if the occasion arises. You still want me to keep it? By all means. The camera shots here, by the way, are all very nice. They're all very tight. They're either close-ups or two shots, one or more of these three men filling the screen most of the time. In particular, there's the moment when Stephen offers Howard the gun. He puts one hand on Howard's shoulder while offering his gun with the other, so that it almost seems pointed at Howard, as if Stephen is robbing him, which of course is just what he's doing. All of these close-ups are a bit disorienting. We don't really get to see clearly what the room looks like. We don't get to see clearly what the mansion looks like inside. But now it's time to go to the haunted room, and Sir Stephen leads the other two men up a very dark staircase, holding a candelabra. That's one of our few long shots, but it's all in shadow. When they get to the top of the stairs, Sir Stephen takes out a key, unlocks the room, and lets them in. Jack Seabrook says, Director Stevens creates interest with good camera movement and creative shots including one where he frames Latimer between two candles and a candelabra held by Stephen. When the trio enter the haunted room, the scene features wonderful shadows, though they do not quite match up with the room's only light source. Now Derek is carrying a suitcase, which he sets down in the room. So they must have stopped off at Howard's hotel, and Howard must have checked out. It's never mentioned. The only inference is that suitcase. But it's a nice touch, because if Howard never returns to the hotel after this night, and he's still checked in, you would think there'd be some questions asked. Now what about the room itself? From what we can see, there are at least two tables. One has a candlestick on it, a few Queen Anne chairs, a four-poster bed, some sort of tapestry on the wall, a heavy, dusty curtain over the window, and a very large fireplace. You can't have a fire, of course, under the circumstances. I hope you won't be too uncomfortable. Oh, that's all right. 
In, in fact, I sleep better in a cold room. Sleep? Do you actually mean to sleep? Of course. You know, interested as I am in the uh, Phantom, especially since I can't pry any information from either of you, I'm afraid I can't sit up all night for it. Yes, if the ghost wants to have any dealings with me, it, it can wake me. Ah, yes. You are interested in the ghost. This is the moment that Stephen and Derek have been waiting for. It's all high drama here that they've concocted, so they have resisted answering any questions about the ghost until this moment. And having gotten this cue, Stephen walks right by the camera, temporarily filling the screen, holding his candelabra. Almost in self-defense, the camera shot switches to a close-up of a table with a dusty book on it. We see Stephen's hands as he sets the candelabra, of which we only see the base, on that table, and he picks up the book. There is no dust under that book when he picks it up, so it gives you the idea that the book has been sitting there for a very long time. And we can see the title of the book, Ghosts of Notable British Homes. And even though the book has been sitting there, apparently, for a very long time, Stephen picks it up and immediately finds the section on the Hurstwood ghost. The camera pulls back, and we have Sir Stephen on the left in the foreground, Howard in the middle in the midground, and Derek on the right in the background. Derek is now holding the single candlestick, which is as yet unlit. So since we all know at this point, having read the story, that this is all a hoax, how much of the story of the Hurstwood ghost is true? Is there really supposed to be a ghost? Did Sir Stephen print up a fake book and leave it to gather dust in this room, just in case there was any chance that he could do the ghost bet? None of this is answered. Howard is suspicious, but Stephen plays it cool. Sir Stephen, I had no idea that the ghost was written up. Let's see, now, the, uh, the, the Hurstwood ghost. Yes, very interesting. Mm, I see. You wanted me to read this while I was alone in the room so that the shadows and the silence would make it that much more convincing, hmm? No need to read it at all if you'd rather not. It's not in the bet. Oh, I shall. I wouldn't miss it for anything. This is where Derek steps in. And now our threesome consists of Stephen, sort of in the background, once again holding the candelabra, backlighting the scene. Derek in the middle, holding the unlit candlestick, and Howard on the right in the foreground, but his back is to us. Well, here's your candle. You have the pistol, mm -hmm. and here is the match. You haven't any others, I take it? No. Oh, uh, here's my lighter, though. The Pie Lady at pieladyanthology.wordpress.com notes that Howard has integrity by turning his lighter over. He is honoring the conditions of the bet. The other two men aren't even really betting at all. And Howard is still wary of that possibility. Would you care to light it now? Uh, no. No, thank you. I'll think I'll wait until after you're gone, so there won't be any drafts. Good idea. Yes. Very prudent, I should say. Sir Stephen gives Howard the key to the room and then he and Derek depart, taking the candelabra with them. 
The lights fade as they leave. A nice effect. So that Howard is just a dark outline. Then he lights his match and we get just the match itself in the dark. But when he applies it to the candle, the lights come up. He blows out the match, puts the key in his pocket, protects the flame with his hand as he walks to the fireplace and throws the match in. He leans down and checks the flue of the fireplace and almost loses his candle flame right then and there. He sets the candle down and opens those curtains that are so dusty they make him cough. And then the scene dissolves to Howard sitting on the bed, reading by that lone candle flame the story of the Hurstwood ghost. The tale of the Hurstwood ghost dates from early in the 19th century when the great-great-grandfather of the present baronet first inherited Hurstwood. He was expecting his two young daughters to return from school on the continent, but as it happened, they came a day early, and he was away when they arrived. So there was no one to greet them but an elderly caretaker who finished her work and left before dark. So we start with a shot of Howard, jacket and tie off, reading the book. We see that he has a monogram of H.L. on his shirt pocket, which I rather like. And as he reads, and we hear what he reads, the camera moves in on him. Then... As he reads about the elderly caretaker, the camera moves away and focuses in on the candle, just at the moment that he gets to the candle in the story. Indeed, they could find only a stump of a candle with which to light their way to bed. But once there, the two girls were not dismayed, especially Julia, the more venturesome of the two. And with that said, the scene dissolves to the same shot of the same candlestick but of a different candle. And then the camera pans over, and instead of finding Howard in the bed, it finds Julia and Geraldine in the bed. They're both under the covers, laughing and talking, but we don't get to hear them, because this scene plays mostly like a silent movie. No human voices, except for one scream at the end. <laughs> There are also some sound effects that seem to merge Howard's world of reading the story with the world of Julie and Geraldine that were seen on the screen. They lay chatting for a time in the candle's feeble light, when suddenly they thought they heard a sound from somewhere below. The sound that takes Julia from the bed to investigate. This is the part of the short story known as the Phantom Footsteps. I think the story-within-a-story concept is a bit awkward there, but Robert Stevens pulls it off very nicely here. If I want to be picky about this, I would have preferred that we didn't see a transition from one candle to the other. I would have preferred that the camera panned over to the candle, stayed on that candle, and then panned back to find Julia and Geraldine in the bed. And I suppose that the reason for the dissolve is to make sure the audience knows that we are now in the past or in the story, rather than through any technical shortcomings. And I understand that. 
but I still would have preferred that seamless transition. Now, before we continue with the story, I'm going to ruin the spooky mood and talk about the two actors who played Julia and Geraldine. Julia is Jan Cheney, and she only has 10 credits on IMDb, running from 1956 to 1958. She was born in Boston, but raised in Long Beach, California. She was discovered in a high school play at Long Beach Polytechnic High School and given her first part on TV's On Trial opposite Joseph Cotton. By July of 1956, she is reportedly going steady with Tab Hunter, who gives her a fur stole in November. By December, she is seen out with Tab Hunter along with Tony Perkins and Norma Moore. But by 1958, Silver Screen is calling her an old flame of Tab Hunter. Her Hollywood career seems to end there. She moves back to the East Coast and appears at the Music Circus in Lambertville, New Jersey, first as Lola in Damn Yankees, then as Daisy May in Little Abner, and finally as Irma LaDuce in Irma LaDuce. In 1958, she is also the understudy to Gwen Verdon in the Broadway production of Redhead, but I'm not sure if she got to perform. In 1959, she married child actor-turned-CBS executive Ronnie Liss. That marriage didn't last. And in 1963, she married Peter W. Jones, to whom she is still married. Of her Hollywood credits, she appeared in the Mike Hammer film My Gun is Quick, where she plays a prostitute who is killed in what looks like a hit-and-run accident. But her ring, once stolen by Nazis, is again missing. She was also in an episode of State Trooper, opposite Michael Landon. He'll be back, Marie. Do you think he suspected something? I don't know what'll bring him back, but he'll be back. Joe, I can't get the blood off the floor. Nothing will take it out, nothing. This is her only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Jan Cheney is at the time of this recording, 84 years old. Sonia Torgerson plays Geraldine. She has only six credits on IMDb, but two of them are very familiar to fans of Mystery Science Theater 3000 because she's Peg Lawrence in Daddy-O and Alice Woodward in Teenagers from Outer Space. Here's a straight clip from Teenagers. Hi there. Who's the stranger? Uh, Joe couldn't make it, Alice. I talked Derek into coming along. Uh, Derek, this is Alice. Derek? Hey, I like that. Come on in. The water's fine. Well, we need a pair of swim trunks. I couldn't find any at my house. No problem at all. He can wear a pair of my father's. The folks are gone today, and so are the servants. We have the whole place to ourselves. And here's an MST3K clip from Daddy-O. Well, how about it? Go on, Phil. She's asking for it. Well, how about it, Barney Oldfield? Right now, tonight. You can race to the park, and the finish line will be next. And the loser has to buy the pizza. Ooh, park holy wow. Have all those nice hairpin turns to yourself. Suits me. Bill? Go ahead. Teach her a lesson. I don't think there's anything he could teach me. Oh, yeah? What about Trig or Calculus, Fortran or Cobalt? Let's make it. You mean they have to build their cars no, like a soapbox no, derby? Make the scene. Sonia is the one who says, go ahead, teach her a lesson. This is from TomGrafe.org. Tom Grafe was the writer and director of Teenagers from Outer Space. 
Sonia May Torgerson was born in Kimball County, Nebraska, where her father was a well-known attorney. She was very active in high school drama, often stealing the limelight from other students. She left school after three years to move to New York City, where she pursued a career on Broadway. In 1954, she was cast in a small role in the show Ondine, which won four Tonys, including Best Actress for Audrey Hepburn. By 1956, Sonia was in Los Angeles looking for parts in film and television. She landed her first role as Julia Hurstwood in a flashback sequence on an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And let me add parenthetically, she was not Julia, she was Geraldine, as we know. The next year, Sonia received her first speaking role in the film Teenagers from Outer Space, playing vixen Alice Woodward. However, that film wasn't to be released until 1959, and in the meantime, film audiences were introduced to Sonia through the B-film Daddy-O, 1958. Sonia left Hollywood in the early 60s. She traveled the world, teaching English in Spain for a few years, before returning to the States. She lived in Cheyenne with an aunt, only returning to Nebraska for a short time when her father passed away. Sonia died in 1993 at the age of 60. And this is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. Let's get back to Howard's reading of the story. Geraldine was frightened, but Julia said she was going to investigate. Geraldine tried to dissuade her, but it was useless. Julia took the candle and departed, while Geraldine fearfully awaited her return. As Julia leaves with the candle, the lights go down again, and Geraldine is mostly in darkness. And then we crossfade back to Howard, who is also in quite a bit of darkness reading his book, even though he does have that one flame of the candle. Howard is clearly into it. He sits up in the bed, gets a cigarette out of his jacket pocket without even looking up from the book. And then we switch back again to Geraldine, who mimes everything that Howard describes until we get to that scream. And then, as with the footsteps, as with the sound downstairs, the scream merges with the flashback, and it all becomes very current and very real. Presently, after a long silence, she heard a muffled sound which she could not identify. She waited, straining her ears, but the noise was not repeated. Finally, she heard the sound of footsteps coming up the stairs. They came along the hall and turned into the room. She called out to her sister, but there was no answer as the steps came on across the room. Geraldine laughed anxiously and begged Julia not to play jokes but only silence answered as the footsteps paused beside the bed. Geraldine reached out her hand and felt a wave of relief as it touched the soft edge of her sister's dressing gown. She lifted her hand to touch her sister's face, but felt instead something wet and warm. We're back again with Howard in a close-up as he very intently reads the rest of the story. Camera pulls back during this time, and we can see on the table the lit candle and the gun. When their father arrived the next morning, his eyes were assailed by a dreadful sight. On the stairs, a trail of blood, the footsteps leading upward. And on the floor in the girl's room, Julia's body, its head severed from the trunk, 
and on the bed his beloved Geraldine, her hair snow white, her lips mumbling the tortured fancies of a maniac. In time, they pieced the story together from her ravings, but she remained completely mad. The deed was attributed to a homicidal lunatic who had just escaped from the nearby Sunnyview Sanitarium. And so we are introduced to the nearby Sunnyview Sanitarium in something that seems like it's just filler, but comes back very nicely at the end. Now, we don't get the moments that we get in the story where Puce is yelling and doesn't realize he's yelling or laughs and doesn't realize he's the one that's laughing. It's much more subtle than that, but you can still tell in the way Howard sort of chuckles in the way he pronounces his verdict of the story that it's a lot of bravado and that it really has shaken him up. And then, to make matters worse, when he closes the book firmly in pseudo-contempt, the breeze from that motion blows the candle out. What a lot of tripe. And so we dissolve to later. Howard is dozing on the bed when he hears the sound of the door opening. That's set. He reaches for the gun, and he sees a rather blurry figure enveloped in an aura of light. As it approaches him, it gets more focused, and it is someone in a floor-length nightgown, which may or may not be the same nightgown that Julia wore in the flashback, without a head. Hello, Sir Stephen. Or is it Derek? I'm glad you showed up because things were getting pretty dull. By the way, old boy, you forgot something. Your head. Uh, I'd ask you in, but it seems a little late for that. That was a neat trick coming in. How did you do it? A sliding panel? Now, that's a nice effect. I'd love to know how you did it. Did you do this professionally or, or just to entertain friends? By the way, old boy, when you get to the foot of the bed, you can hold up there if you don't mind. Oh, you're a mighty taciturn ghost, aren't you? But I think I should tell you that I have a gun. I'm quite willing to shoot if you don't stop now. Now look, don't come any closer, do you hear me? Don't come any closer! All right, all right! The gunshots have no effect, and Howard does not run, but he does pass out as we fade to black, only to come up again with an exterior shot and that gothic lettering, this time saying, Hurstwood Manor, October 1945. World War II ended in Europe in May of that year, so it's about five months after, and we move back inside Hurstwood Manor. Derek and Sir Stephen are coming down the stairs, and Sir Stephen now walks with a cane. He got a bum leg in the war, but he's fared much better than his counterpart in the short story, who lost an arm in his war. It's the same set, the same stairs, that we saw the three men 
climb earlier in the episode. Now, as these two men descend, it's so much better lit, so harmless looking. Stephen is selling Hurstwood Manor to a wealthy Canadian, and this news reminds Derek of the wealthy American they hosted five years before. Lorimer, or whatever his name was. Do you remember him? Did you ever hear from him again? Oh, yes. Latimer. No, I never did. I suppose he went back to the States and joined up once they got in. The doorbell rings. The butler goes to answer it. And in what is sort of a painful coincidence, Howard Latimer is at the door. The butler recognizes him. Why, it's the gentleman from America, Mr. Latimer. Which is pretty good, seeing as it's been five years since Latimer was there for just one night. Not to mention the fact that there didn't appear to be a butler there at all five years ago. But since he's here now, let's take a look at him. He is played by Eric Snowden. IMDb says of him, radio actor who made occasional films but only received screen credit in two films. He later made a few TV appearances, including two on the popular series Leave it to Beaver. In fact, we heard him earlier when I played a clip from Beaver's Short Pants in episode 27, Help Wanted. Here's part of that clip again. And not many mothers nowadays have such excellent taste. Oh, I'm not his mother. Uh-uh. My mother won't tell a baby with Aunt Peggy. <laughs> it's exquisite material. English, isn't it? Naturally, madam. <laughs> my knees are cold. Why, when my brothers were your age, they wore trousers like that winter and summer. Uh, shall I send these, madam? I think not. You may uh, dispose of them. I'd be delighted to, madam. Eric also had a small role in Hitchcock's 1956 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. But as IMDb said, he was mostly a radio actor, and his other Hitchcock connections are in Lux Radio Theater, where he was in their version of The 39 Steps and two versions of Suspicion, and in Mystery in the Air with their version of The Lodger. And he was also the first voice of the radio show Escape. It's time to escape into the world of adventure. Time to forget for the next half hour the four walls of today and escape beyond the horizons of the mind to yesterday and tomorrow. CBS and its affiliated stations present Escape. This is Eric Snowden's only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and he died in 1979 at the age of 90. So Howard enters the manor, and we get a close-up of him. We've already had plenty of close-ups of Howard before. We're going to get a few more before it's over. And he seems to be very cheerful, all smiles, happy to see the two men. But there is something about the look in his eyes. There's a bit of a twitch, and he blinks just a little too much. But now the truth starts to come out. The two men explain the events of five years before. And as they explain, we get extreme close-ups of Howard's face as he takes it all in. You know, you gave us quite a fright that night you stayed here. When you passed out, we thought you were dead. Yes. It took us forever to find a pulse. We thought the doctor would never get here. It was a tremendous relief when we telephoned the doctor next morning and he told us you were simply in a state of shock and would come out of it all right. Always meant to get in touch, you know, but never quite got around to it. 
I paid Stephen the money, of course. We decided that a faint from fright was equivalent to running. It seems obvious that you would have run if you'd been able. And of course, Stephen needed the money so much more than you did. It was a lifesaver, really. It seems pretty clear that Stephen really did need the money more than Howard did. And if it was a lifesaver for him, it sort of seems like maybe it was okay. But it's not okay. For one thing, this decision to give him the money, assuming that Howard would have run if he'd been able, doesn't take into account that as Howard was firing the gun, he was yelling, Hey, you want me to run? But I'm not going to run! No! I won't run! And for another thing, the two men heard him yelling, I'm not going to run, because they were the guys that staged the haunting. As they continue their explanation, Stephen and Derek take up positions on either side of Howard. The camera shows us all three of them, and then they walk toward the camera. As they get closer, Stephen and Derek sort of peel away, so that we move in on another close-up of Howard. This time, his pleasant expression turns to dismay when Julia is mentioned. Yours was one of the most successful apparitions we ever staged, I believe. I've always thought it was the way we handled the blanks. The blanks? Yes, by putting one real bullet into the clip and letting you fire it into the fireplace, you'd be less likely to realize the remainder were blanks. I always thought that story about Julia and Geraldine and the headless ghost and all of it was far too theatrical. Yet... Julia. Then you're the one! Stephen does say at the beginning of that, Yours was one of the most successful apparitions we ever staged, I believe. So they have done it probably many times before. But this one was a little too successful, as Howard attacks Stephen and starts strangling him. It's interesting that Howard goes after Stephen, because it's Derek who brings up Julia. It's almost as if he knows somewhere inside that Stephen is the root of all of his troubles. Derek pulls Howard off of Stephen, and Stephen tries to make a break for it up those stairs. But Howard wrests Stephen's cane away from him, knocks him down on the stairs, and tries to asphyxiate him with it. Those same stairs that led Howard up to his breakdown could be the site of Stephen's demise. Derek again tries to pull Howard off, and he says something very telling, all unawares. But then the men in the white coats burst in without even knocking, and they pull Howard away and force him into a straitjacket. I don't know how silly and cliched this looked back in 1956, but it certainly looks silly and cliched today. And it makes me think of this, although granted, it wasn't recorded until 10 years later. They're coming to take me away, ha-ha, they're coming to take me away, ho-ho, hee-hee, ha-ha, to the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time, and I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats, and they're coming to take me away, ha-ha! I also wonder how Howard got that nice coat and tie if he's usually trussed up in a straitjacket. As the men in the white coats deal with Howard, another man comes in to talk to Stephen and Derek. I'm terribly sorry, sir. He gave us a slip. Look, if we knew where to come to right away. Always comes here, he does. This man was played by John Alderson. IMDb says John Basher Alderson led a colorful life considering his origins in a mining village in the north of England. After spending all of two weeks as a miner, he lied about his age, joined the British Army, and attained the rank of Major. 
Leaving for the U.S., he married a general secretary and got into the movies, often playing villains. He was an expert horseman and appeared in many film and TV westerns, and he starred in his own western series as Sergeant Bullock in Boots and Saddles, 1956, right around the same time as this episode. He's in the Night Gallery episode Lindemann's Catch. He's the gum chewer in Blazing Saddles. And he plays Little John in the Time Tunnel episode The Revenge of Robin Hood. I heard something. Oh, just a bird. I. <laughs> a bird. A large green bird. Ready to catch a couple of worms. Out of the frying. What was that? Speak up, man. We're strangers. We're just passing through. <laughs> Aye. Well, you must be a couple of Frenchmen. Why no Englishman would be buried in such clothes? <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting that he's in a scene here with a descendant of Ike Clanton, because around this same time, he played Virgil Earp in an episode of You Are There. And then 10 years later, he played Wyatt Earp in Doctor Who. Well, I, I don't know who you are and what right you have. Marshal of Tombstone's my right and Wyatt Earp's my name. Wyatt Earp! Oh, something wrong, ma'am. Oh, no, it's just that... Well, I always wanted to meet you, and here we are, face to face. <laughs> well, the Lord sure do move in mysterious ways, ma'am. Now maybe you'll all come along to the sheriff's office. John Alderson is in two total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next is The Crocodile Case, episode 34 of season three. And he's also in To Catch a Thief as one of the detectives at the costume ball. And John Alderson died in 2006 at the age of 90. Let's get back to the end of our episode and our twist. Always comes here, he does. Comes here? From where? From Sunnyview. It's a sanitarium right over the hillside, you know. Yes. Harmless as a baby is between his attacks. But he'd kill a man. Just like that when one of them's on him. And that's a fact. Seems he's got some idea his sister Julia was murdered. And he's got to be revenged on the man that cut her head off. Julia! Julia! Goodbye, sir. May God have mercy on us. next film in our list of Hitchcock as title designer is Perpetua, released in the United States as Love's Boomerang. Here's a review from the March 18, 1922 issue of Exhibitor's Herald. This is probably the best picture that has come from the British studios of Paramount so far. Excellently directed by John S. Robertson and splendidly cast with Anne Forrest and David Powell, in leading parts, should prove a good attraction. In converting Dion Clayton Calthrop's novel Perpetua to the screen, 
Mr. Robertson has retained all the charm and naivete which aided much in making that book one of the best sellers. The story has the lure of excellent circus scenes made through the cooperation of the Pindar Brothers Circus in France and has the thrill of dramatic conflict in the machinations of Felton the Crook who meets death at the hands of a convict he attempted to trick. Perpetua, an orphan, is adopted by McCree, an artist. The two go on a holiday trip through France where they meet Lamballe, the owner of the circus. The circus elephant has been pawned by Lamballe and the artist, sensing the dismay in the eyes of the disappointed Perpetua, buys the claim against the animal, and the wanderers become part of the troupe. For several years, the artist and the girl travel with the circus, leading delightful vagabond lives. Later, the girl is sent to a convent, and the discovery is made by Felton that she is his deserted child. The crook has been leading a youth to physical destruction after being made heir to his money and sees in Perpetua an opportunity to further assure himself of the fortune. The youth falls in love with the girl, and urged by her father, she marries him. Felton seeks to strengthen his scheme by forcing liquor on the youth, while Perpetua seeks to cure him of his craving for drink. Hoping to hasten events, Felton poisons a draft which the young wife gives to her feverish husband. She is charged with murder, and Felton's testimony results in a verdict of guilty. The dead youth had changed his will in Perpetua's favor, and Felton writes a confession and prepares to flee when a convict, to whom Felton had promised money, confronts him. In the gun duel, both are killed. McCree, secretly working for Perpetua's freedom, meets her on her release, each realizing the love for the other. The Hitchcock Zone has this anecdote. Contemporary newspapers reported on an incident which occurred during filming circus scenes on Hampstead Heath. Sudden winds demolished a tent housing two elephants, who then escaped, and for over half an hour the bewildered elephants careered around the heath in the rain at the unearthly hour of two in the morning. Like most of the films we are looking at from this phase of Hitchcock's career, Perpetua is now lost. Francis Cockrell's adaptation of The Gentleman from America is carefully constructed, and he and Robert Stevens do a fine job bringing suspense to a story that is, in many ways, dramatically awkward. But what is it all about? Is it just a good yarn with a shock ending? As I've asked of previous episodes, is there more than the twist? In his review of the story, Jack Seabrook sees a hint of anti-Americanism. He writes... Despite his large athletic frame and his boasting about guns, Puce is put into a state of fright by a children's book of ghost stories, and in the end driven insane by Quillier's prank. Perhaps this is a subtle jab at Americans in the years following World War I, aimed at British readers tired of Americans reminding them of the role that the former colonies played in winning that war. But now that the story has been adapted by an American for American TV, the gentleman from America is no longer a giant physical presence. He's no longer a boaster. He's no longer a lover of guns. In fact, Francis Cockrell goes out of his way to point out in the script that Howard is unfamiliar with guns. And rather than being a boaster, Howard is polite, respectful, and honest to a fault. In the story, Puce, as Jack Seabrook puts it, bristles at addressing Quillier as Sir. But Howard has no problem with that. He doesn't enter the bet as a boast. He is generally interested in the idea of a ghost. And he plays fair, giving up his lighter as part of the bargain. So if Howard is guilty of anything, it is of having poor judgment 
as exemplified by his belief that, as he puts it, this phony war won't last much longer. He also has the poor judgment to listen to a horse race at a men's club that probably shouldn't have let him in to begin with, seeing as he's probably not a member, and in that, showcasing himself as ripe for the picking by these other two rogues. In Philip K. Dick's Flow My Tears, the policeman said, the lesson seems to be, don't come to the attention of the authorities. Don't ever interest us. Don't make us want to know more about you. That is what Howard does with Stephen and Derek. But is that enough for him to deserve this punishment? After all, he isn't a total dupe. He does suspect that they will pull some trick on him, but he doesn't have enough wherewithal to figure out that the gun has blanks in it, and he doesn't have enough self-understanding to know that he is susceptible to fear and to the dark and to a story of ghosts, even if he thinks he doesn't believe in them. So is that it? Is that the point? No, because our rogues turn out to have consciences after all. They can justify their cheating and their hoaxes in the name of needing money and thereby taking money from those who can afford to lose money. But they have just come out of a war in which they fought against tyranny. And Stephen is even paid for that by getting a game leg. So there is some honor there. Ultimately, Howard is a device, unfortunately for him. A device who has to take a very hard fall because it is only a very hard fall that will penetrate Stephen and Derek's armor of excuses and entitlement saying, may God have mercy on us, may not seem like much of a punishment compared to being carried off in a straitjacket while yelling, Julia! But you do get the feeling that Stephen and Derek, having perfected the art of haunting, will be haunted by this for the rest of their lives. Now here's Hitch. He's still sitting in that chair that is no longer there, in front of the door that has a sign that says quiet on it. And just because a silly girl lost her head over some imaginary noisy years before. Apparently some people can't read. He gets up, goes to that door, opens it, and looks. It's all right, just a young lady who needs help to put the chains on her car. I'll be back shortly. Meanwhile, considering the gravity of our next announcement, I think this is more appropriate. He flips the quiet sign over. On the other side, it says, Think. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, Serpico, The Thomas Crown Affair, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Perry Mason, Season 2, Volume 1, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Volume 33, containing Daddio, Leave it to Beaver, Season 1, and The Adventures of Captain Marvel are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. Cyrano de Bergerac, the thriller episodes The Purple Room and The Cheaters, the suspense episode The Suicide Club, The 27th Day, the intro to the radio show Escape, Buona Devil, Teenagers from Outer Space, the State Trooper episode Buck Fever, They're Coming to Take Me Away, Haha, by Napoleon the Fourteenth, the Time Tunnel episode The Revenge of Robin Hood, and the Doctor Who episode A Holiday for the Doctor are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this episode, please email me at Scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S J 
O E R D S M A A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 32 The Babysitter, starring Thelma Ritter. Now back to Hitch to finish up. He returns to the set by coming through the door again. I think these upcoming jokes, like the one about the young lady who needed help putting chains on her car, refer to ghosts or witches or something supernatural. In fact, when he gets to the line, Tonight's guests were flown to Hollywood by the world's oldest airlines. A broomstick appears in front of him. The effect is unfortunately marred by the fact that we can see the wires holding the broomstick up. A very interesting experience. It's been years since I saw a stuffed spare cat. Now for a few posthumous announcements. The bullets used on tonight's program were made with new enriched gunpowder. Furs by feline. Tonight's guests were flown to Hollywood by the world's oldest airlines. Next week, we shall fly some more in, if space is available. Until then, good night.